Drew Tales Live on PPM-TV is made possible through the generous support of Artists Collaborative Theatre of New England, Act One, presenting outstanding performances of stories with heart. For further information, contact 603-300-2986 or on the web at act1nh.org. With additional support from Pat Spaulding, who really wants to know, hey, what's your story? I can't believe I'm 92, and but I am. And uh, my father said to me, but he says, said when you're building your life, the most important things are the four L's. And the first L is listening. And that's what we do when you come to, to, to Jonesboro. We listen. We listen. And it's a rare thing these days, listening listening to the human voice, listening to one person talking to another person, listening. We have forgotten how to listen, how to sit down and talk and have a good time listening. My daddy said, listen. God gave you two ears and one mouth, and he expected you to use them in that proportion. And the first L is listening. And the next L is learning. You have to learn something different all your life. Don't ever quit learning. Listening. And laughing is the third L, he said. We've all got to laugh. Laugh at ourselves. Laugh at something every day. The world is a magical, wonderful place, he said. But we need to laugh together. Don't laugh at people, my father said. You laugh with people. And you can never hate anyone you've really laughed with. Laughter binds people together. The most important L is loving. Loving. That God put us here to love each other. To enjoy each other. To help each other. To laugh together to learn together, to listen together, but to love each other. And there's nothing that says I love you more pleasantly and more plainly than storytelling. Everybody here has stories that you need to tell, and now is the time to do it. Tell stories and tell each one with love, ending with I love you. I love you. Thanks to Catherine Tucker Windham, who was speaking at the 2010 Alabama Storytelling Festival at the age of 92 about the importance of stories. I'm Amy Antonucci, and I'm here to welcome you to True Tales Live, our February 2020 edition, coming to you from Portsmouth Public Media TV, Channel 98 in New Hampshire. Thanks so much to everyone watching and listening, and special thanks to our in-studio audience. We're so glad you're here. Our mission at True Tales Live is to provide a space for people to tell their first-person experience stories, stories that reflect our community's personal and cultural diversity, and help us um, 
bridge differences to build understanding and respect for everybody. While we encourage the development of storytelling skills, we have monthly workshops and other assistance that we provide to tellers, tonight is not a competition. We're not going to have any ranking or scoring or judging at all. We really believe that stories shared from the heart uplift and inspire all of us, and that is why we're here. The theme for tonight's show is Acting for Justice, and we have five tellers coming up to give you stories. Those will be Cindy Prey, Kathy Wolf, Bill Maddox, <clears throat> Barbara Rimkunis, and Terry Farish. Each have a 10-minute limit for their telling, and each will be introduced to you by our MC, Pat Spaulding. After the show, the storytelling part of the show, there'll be an interview segment. <coughs> And tonight, the interview will be with Terry Farish. So first, for the stories, let's welcome Pat up here to get us going. Come up, Pat. Thank you. Cindy Prey is first up. She lives in Elliott, is a licensed clinical therapist in private practice whose area of expertise is severe trauma. Cindy says, I'm 62 and I love what I do. That's very cheerful news. And it rhymes. <laughs> Thanks, Cindy. <laughs> in order to fit into our program tonight, we shortened the title of Cindy's story to New Hampshire's first female firefighter. But the longer version that Cindy originally presented us with is how we became the first female fi firefighter in the state of New Hampshire. So. Let's find out how she did it. Come, come on up, Cindy. All right, so I can stand here, John. Can I stand this far back? Yeah, I'm a little closer. Cool. That's good. It's good? People can hear? Closer. Good. Good. So it's the summer of 1976, and I've just turned 19 years old. I graduated high school in the first week of June, and I am now sitting at the kitchen table of my mother's house with the want ads. Remember back in those days, the want ads? That's how you got a job? They're spread out because I am college-bound, community college in the fall. I'm going to be commuting from home because the bill's mine. So I have two jobs already, one full-time at night gig waitressing, and I've got a weekend job cleaning rooms at a hotel on Lake Winnipesaukee and I'm looking to fill Monday through Friday during the day. So I'm reading them out loud. My mother, who is a real toughy man, I love her still and I miss her. She's five feet tall, flaming red hair, and she raised three kids by herself after my dad died when I was young. She did not suffer fools very well at all. She put up with whining a little bit and complaining even less. And then inevitably, because she was either attached to the sink or the counter, she would turn around and wipe her hands on the apron that was permanently attached to her. She looked down at you with a look that could melt rust off iron, and she'd say, what are you going to do about it? So what I was doing about it while I was whining about having to find yet another job was reading them out loud. And I come across one firefighter wanted, $150 a month, $18 active duty. My mom goes, bet you can't get that one. And I went, 
bet I can. <laughs> and she says, all right, do it. And I said, how much will you bet? And she goes, a dollar. <laughs> all right, you're on. <laughs> Three days later, I'm at Laconia Central. I walk in these giant doors of this fire department, and there's a solid door with glass in the back of a head sitting in a swivel chair. So I knock on the glass. Swivels around, looks at me. That's what I get. So I open the door, walk in. I, Hi, I'm Cindy, and I'm here to apply for the firefighter's position, if you're still hiring. I get nothing. Just looks at me. Finally stands up. He takes the pen he's holding, and he throws it on the floor. Stay here. Okay. So I'm standing there. He comes back a few minutes later. Three pieces of paper. That's the application. So I'm flipping through them, and he's going, fill them out, come back. And I'm like, well, can I fill them out right now and leave them? I don't care what you do. Okay. So I go out to my car, I fill him out, I bring him back in, I hand him to him, and he's like, nothing, get nothing. A week later, I get a phone call, and the phone call is, we want you at the post office, you're going to be administered civil servants exam. Okay, so that's really square pegs, square holes, round pegs, round holes, color recognition, shape recognition, do you know how many inches in a foot? That's all that is, right? I'm just out of high school. I learned then and there that I have 19 fellow applicants, and they're all kind of dumpy-looking old guys, and they're <laughs> a little bit chunky, and I'm like, okay, trying to introduce myself and say hi, and I get nothing. So again, we sit down, we have our instructions. Remember, I'm out of high school, I just finished my finals. So, boom, 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 done. Put my pencil down, and the guy goes, we walk out in the hallway, stay here until everybody's done. 19 other people finally finished, and they come out. And he goes, it was the postmaster general, who was my neighbor, and says, you young lady have not only just broke the record for how quickly this can be done, you have a perfect score. <coughs> I turn around like this to all my fellow applicants. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> so the next week, we were supposed to report to the same high school I graduated from. We were to start our physical testing. Now, mind you, I've been on the track team for four years. We got to run a mile in under 12 minutes. 12 minutes or under. Shoes on, the chunky guys that are a little chunky and smoking and inactive. So I do my warm-up lap. I do my other laps, and I'm lapping everybody. 6.59, that's my time. I know, because I'm looking at my watch. <laughs> And then I'm like, yeah, warm down. I'm trotting next to everybody. I'm, Come on, you can do it. Pick it up. And I get nothing. Nothing. Next week, same gym. And now we have to do strength and agility. And this is all it amounted to. You had to do a minimum of three pull-ups. You had to do 50 push-ups. And you had to crank out 100 sit-ups. Right? You know, month before, I'm doing this in gym. Then, here's the big one. We had balance beams set up in a set of free weights with sandbags, one on either end. It's propped up on the balance beam. You have to simulate carrying 150 pounds, which is what it weighed. Walk down one end of the beam, turn around, and come back. So 
I was in gymnastics mm -hmm. and I know how to do this. Hop up on the beam, pick it up, curl my toes around the edge of the beam, walk right down to the end, stop, turn around, come back, put it down on the beam, and then I turn around and I do an utterly fabulous and flawless dismount. <laughs> I get nothing. Jeez. Hop over to the edge of the gym, sit on the floor all by myself. So, a couple more weeks of training, we have to do examinations where we burn jet fuel. It's really hot, it's really uncomfortable, you have to put it out, you have the directions told one time, and you do it. I get through all that. Very last thing, weeks later, is this. You have to do your truck examination. Right? Fire trucks back then were not like now. Here's what you have to do. Double S curve through cones, forward. You move up until somebody's standing there goes, stop, and then you do the same thing backwards. Can't touch cone, and then you have to park one foot from a wire fence. So I get in the truck, sit down for the first time, and I'm like, holy crap. I can't sit back in the seat and touch the pedals. <laughs> if I lean forward on the seat and I'm sitting on the edge of it, I literally cannot see the mirrors. Oh. Right? I'm blind. I'm driving blind. So I sit there for a minute, I start sweating, and it dawns on me for the first time, I am not only the only girl out of 20 people, there's no other women. It hits me for the first time. I'm the only one, and they don't want me to pass, really and truly. And then it's, I gotta do this. And then it's, do I really wanna do this? So, bang on the door, go. Start the truck up, going through is fine. Double S, I have to do it. Guy goes like this, the truck in park, and then put it in reverse, and I can't move, I'm paralyzed. And then I'm like, I gotta do it, gotta do it, gotta do it, and the guy in front of me is going. And I'm like, okay. So I just went, okay. Took a deep breath, all the way down, gas, backwards. And I'm kind of remembering, kind of remembering. I guesstimate where I am, hit the brake, put it in park, open the door, and this is what I get. You trying to make us look bad? <laughs> I get out of the truck, I look, no cones down, I'm an inch from the wire fence, an inch. Fast forward, it's now January. I'm a seasoned firefighter. <laughs> It is less than zero degrees. We get a call at 4.45. So there are hot spots in cities. This is a corner section, or it's a section in a city where we have multiple attached structures. That's exactly what we've got. Corner structure, multiple attachments, which means if one part of it goes up, everything does, unless you stop it. It was an iconic place called Paris Pizza four stories high, the back of it had probably 10 tenement apartments attached to it. Retail stores on the bottom. Nothing goes right, everything is going wrong. Firefighter who got caught in a ladder, toes chopped off, water is freezing in midair, hydrants are solid. We can do nothing. It's going to burn to the ground and that is exactly what happened. All through the night, we are battling this, we are struggling, we are trying to contain it, and basically it froze so that what was left didn't burn because there was so much ice on it. 
It is now morning. It's almost 8 o'clock. We're rolling hose up. We're waiting for the all call so that we can leave. And finally, it comes. You're covered in soot. You're freezing cold. I couldn't feel my hands. My jacket is frozen. I'm trying to chip it off. And all the guys I've fought the fire with, they're all helping each other. Nobody helps me. I finally get it off. Walk around the corner like this, going down the street. And a bunch of guys behind me. I'm walking to my car. And on the side of the sidewalk here are all the refugees from the tenement building that was burning. And there's probably, I don't know, two dozen women, kids there. And all of a sudden I hear, and they start breaking into applause. And I'm, I'm looking and I realize it was for me. 10 years later, I went back to visit my mom and this woman runs up to me and she goes, I recognize you. She said, you're Cindy, right? From the fire department, that first one. And I said, I am. Do I know you? She said, my name's Lynn. During that fire that night, I handed you a pair of gloves, dry gloves. And then I remember I said, you did. And I went, I'm so sorry, I never gave them back. <laughs> they were really nice leather gloves. <laughs> I wrecked them. So I never gave them back to you. And she said, that's okay. And she went, you know what? Because of you, I became a firefighter. <laughs> and in that minute, I knew I got everything. Thank you, Cindy. And that was Cindy's first story. We'll have to ask you back to tell more. <laughs> Up next is one of our favorite storytellers, Kathy Wolf. <laughs> She also lives across the border in Maine, near the back channel in Kittery's Foreside. She is a busy woman who does a whole variety package of different kinds of things. Currently, she is co-stage manager for the show A Skull in Connemara, a wonderfully dark Irish comedy that continues to play at Portsmouth's Players Ring through March 1st. So, this is the last weekend. If you want to check it out, go do that. Tonight, Kathy will tell us a story from the era of the 1970s and 80s titled Good Old Boys Club. Come on up, Kathy. Quite a few years ago, I worked at the University of New Hampshire in the News and Publications Office. My boss, who is a fairly self-confident woman, once admitted to me that she felt intimidated every time she had to go to a uh, president's cabinet meeting. I told her, before you go in the room, just tell yourself, it's just a bunch of white guys and at each of them puts their pants on one leg at a time. <laughs> I have no idea if this comforted her, but over the years I found different times when it really helped me. I read Betty Friedan's Feminine Mystique in college because everybody else was reading it. And I thought Gloria Steinem was wonderful, but really what I wanted was to look like her. <laughs> And I never wore bras because I didn't need to, so that was nothing I could really give up. And uh, I wore very little makeup, not out of a statement, but mainly because I was kind of cheap and lazy. 
Um, so I never really felt like I was actively part of the feminist women's movement, not just for those reasons, but I didn't get out in March or anything, partially because I was getting trained to be a journalist. But over the years, I think I've realized that maybe personal feminism is less about marching and more about osmosis and necessity. You've got to be a little bit of a feminist if you're going to work in newsrooms that are 95% male. My first job out of college was at a newspaper in Delaware. There were 30 reporters in that newsroom, and only three of us were women. <laughs> I remember the uh, management posting a memo on the bulletin board, back when we had bulletin boards, we didn't use email then, and <clears throat> they posted a memo that said, women must wear skirts to work, no pants allowed. Marilyn Mathers, one of the uh, three of us, went immediately to the bathroom, took the, her pants off and came back out into the newsroom. The tunic of her pantsuit just barely covered her rear. That memo disappeared off the board <laughs> like that. We never heard about it again. And we all continued to wear slacks if we wanted to. So, um, I also learned in the workplace how to recognize implicit sexism. It happened more than once, but the case I remember is I was a reporter at the Associated Press in Chicago, and the phone rang, I picked it up on the news desk, and it was a man who I had taken a class from at the University of Missouri Journalism School earlier, four years earlier. He was calling for some other friend. He didn't know I worked there. So I said, Mr. Duffy, I took your class four years ago. It's so great. He clearly didn't remember me, but conversationally he said, Oh, and what are you doing at the AP? You're a secretary? He had given me an A. <laughs> I'm only telling these stories, uh, these little stories, to show that I had some understanding of workplace gender bias at the time that I accepted a position of associate director of news at Dartmouth College. And that took it to a whole other level. The, um, the culture was imbued with it. It was, but it was much more genteel than any kind of gender bias I'd run into before and much more ubiquitous. So don't get me wrong, Dartmouth is a great school. It's really wonderful. There are great students, faculty's amazing, and there is an incredibly deep sense of legacy and loyalty. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> there is. And it's, uh, there's a reason they call it Camp Dartmouth, though. If you, if you get in, and if you have a father who went to Dartmouth, you will probably get in. They never let you go. I met a man who had left in the middle of the 60s to go play in a rock and roll band in San Francisco. He came back 20 years later and was uh, warmly welcomed and still considered part of the class of 1968. At another time, I'm sitting at a football game with my young son, and this man leans over. He says, oh, what class is he in? I said, he's only five. And the guy says, oh, oh, he's in the class of 2003. And that was the kind of sense you had at, at Dartmouth. Um, so even so, Dartmouth had a sense of being at the bottom of the Ivy League even with all of its pride and loyalty. I was always hearing a slight desperation to be first, biggest, best at something. In fact, more than once I heard people brag about the fact that Dartmouth was the last 
school in the Ivy League to admit women. And even 15 years after that noble act, when I was there in the late 1980s, um, despite that noble act of admitting women, there was still a real good old boys club feeling on the campus. It was a very academic tone to it, though. For instance, I remember a meeting with uh, the lawyer, there was only three of us in the meeting, the lawyer from the college and my boss, Alex Hoopé, who had the misfortune of not only being prematurely bald when it was not yet fashionable, he also had a last name that rhymed with Toupé. <laughs> um, so the three of us are in this meeting, and then in the middle of the meeting, apropos of nothing, these two guys start quoting Canterbury Tales to each other, the bawdiest, sex, most sexy, misogynist lines in Canterbury Tales, of which there are very many, for those of you who remember it. Not only were they quoting it, they were quoting it in Middle English. I guess they figured I didn't, wouldn't understand. Well, I hated Chaucer. I always hated I hated Chaucer in high school. I always hated him. But when they, when they said, uh, privily, he caught her by the quant. I knew exactly what they were saying. In fact, it's a quote that's become rather famous in English because of our very own president. <laughs> if you translated <laughs> it from middle and middle English. So um, it wasn't long after that incident that Alex Hoopé headed off to Cozumel to try and uh, patch up a crumbling marriage and left me in charge of all the media and public relations for Dartmouth. And of course, that meant that a crisis had to happen. The Dartmouth Review is a conservative student newspaper. It's a flagship uh, of conservative student newspapers, which I guess is another thing Dartmouth could claim as a first. It was the baby of William Buckley and the Heritage Conservative Heritage Foundation. It also spawned later uh, Laura Ingraham. She had been an editor-in-chief there at that paper. Uh, but this, this news student, student newspaper had gone after a black music professor, Bill Cole, and they had kept it mainly in print, nasty, but in print. But they decided to escalate, and they confronted him in his classroom. He told them to leave. They refused. A tussle ensued. There was a hearing. The boys were suspended. It should have and could have ended there, except the Wall Street Journal decided to make it a cause and accused Dartmouth of repression of freedom of speech. Before long, my phone is ringing off the hook with calls from the New York Times, the Village Voice, NBC, and an awful lot of angry alum alumni, uh, who unfortunately mainly sided with the review. So I'm sitting, oh really, okay, so I'm sitting in a uh, meeting called to talk out uh, media strategies, how, how we can deal with media, and there, people are looking at me oddly, all these men, it's only men in the meeting, it's the top honchos of the, of the school. They're looking at me oddly, and I can't figure out why. I figure it's because I'm a woman at the table, and they aren't used to that. But then Sean, the Chaucer, Chaucer quoting lawyer, leans over, he's sitting next to me, he says, you might want to go to the ladies' room. He may have said the little girl's room, but I don't remember. At least he did not say it in Middle English. So I get up from the table, excuse myself, I go down the hall, I look into the mirror and I want to die. I've got ink all over my face. Oh. Many years earlier, I had started the habit of chewing on pencils because I ran out of fingernails. And eventually it had morphed into also chewing on pens, and obviously I had chewed too hard on a pen. In my memory, my face is covered with ink. In reality, I think it was a couple of streaks, except for the tongue. I had a very blue tongue. 
I scrubbed my face as hard as I could uh, with this soap. I looked in the mirror again, and I squared my shoulders, and I said, it's just a bunch of, bunch of white men, and they all put their pants on one leg at a time. And I, as a feminist, want it to be known that I went back down that hall, opened the door, went in, sat down at that table, and continued the discussion. I also want it to be known, as a feminist, that I chose to never, ever chew on a pen or pencil again. <laughs> Thanks, Kathy. Interesting way to learn a lesson. <laughs> colorful. Well, maybe mostly, yeah, colorful. <laughs> Blue. Bill Maddox is our next storyteller. He and his wife, Lynn, Lynn Illingworth, live in Amherst, New Hampshire, with their wonderful rescue dog, Liddy. Bill has been involved in community economic development work for the past 30 years most recently at Carsey School of Public Policy at UNH. He has also worked as a health and safety organizer, United Farm Workers Union boycott organizer, and has been active in peace, civil rights, environmental justice, anti-war, and labor movement struggles. Yes, <laughs> fighting the good fight. Uh, Bill's story, like Kathy's, will take us back to the late 70s, early 80s, when in the role of union organizer on health and safety issues, he worked as a miner in the largest gold mine in North America. The story's titled is The Draw Hole. Come on up, Bill. Thank you, David. Steady. It was 1978, and my wife and I were driving west to San Francisco to look for union jobs when a wrong turn off the interstate changed our plans. I ended up going underground, quite literally, more than 6,000 feet underground under the Black Hills of South Dakota, and this is how it happened. When I was in my early 20s, I was a labor and environmental organizer. My first job was with the United Farm Workers Union as a boycott organizer. While I worked with the farm workers, I learned about the terrible conditions in the fields, the exposure to pesticides, and the terrible environmental effect that this had. And it gave me uh, impetus to become an environmental and, and uh, uh, union organizer. So we drove west, and uh, when we got to the Black Hills, we stopped at Mount Rushmore, famous presidential uh, face place. And um, instead of getting back on the interstate, we ended up driving north through the Black Hills and ended up at a town with a sign that said L-E-A-D. There was a giant mine there, and so we assumed it was a giant lead mine. Uh, but instead, after uh, inquiring with some locals, they said, no, it's lead, and that's the outcropping of ore, and this is the largest gold mine in North America. It's a union shop, and they're hiring. So um, I had been a student of the uh, early labor struggles uh, in the Western Mines, uh, my heroes were uh, Mother Jones and Joe Hill, and um, these are people that fought on behalf of the hardest working people doing the toughest jobs, mining the iron, coal, lead, and silver that a growing America needed. The idea of working underground in a giant gold mine and being able to uh, work on, on environmental and, and uh, 
uh, health and safety issues was very exciting and very romantic to me at the time. So putting aside our middle class uh, good judgment and common sense, we decided to settle in Deadwood, South Dakota. This is the resting place of Wild Bill Hickok and Calamity Jane, where George Armstrong Custer stole the Black Hills and all the gold under it from the Lakota Sioux. Of course, he paid for this with his life at Little Bighorn. On the day I was to go um, to the mine to hire on, a long funeral procession of several cars, dozens of cars actually, blocked my way. Um, this uh, would come back to haunt me later on. Next day, first shift at the mine, I was completely in awe at the enormity of the homestake complex. Two main shafts went from the surface to 5,000 feet, and below that, another shaft went all the way down to 8,323 feet. With my baggy minor overalls called diggers, steel-toed boots, hard hat, miner's light, and lunchbox, I was pushed onto a man cage with 20 other miners for a bouncy, loud, and fast ride down the main shaft. When I got to the bottom, the older miner that I had been assigned to work with that day pushed me out, barked orders at me, and he didn't want me to get lost in the commotion of all of the miners uh, on the station. This was a mile under the mining city of Leed, and um, it was hundreds of miles of tracks and tunnels, uh, large uh, underground uh, ore cars being pulled by electric locomotives, and dozens of the toughest looking men and a few women that I had ever met. We crammed ourselves into a man car, went across the mine to another uh, shaft, went down deeper into the mine, and eventually ended up at the mining area of the uh, miner I was working with. His name was Dallas. He was the president of the union, just by chance. We went down a series of ladders, and we came to a large room blasted out of some of the hardest rock in the world. I looked around the room in awe and wonder. My miner's light lit up the swirling mineral patterns of white and gray and iron pyrite crystals. Iron pyrite is called fool's gold, but this was not fool's gold. This was gold ore. It was real and it was plentiful if you could blast and muck it out. I tried to follow the older miner as he went across the stope. He barked orders at me of things that I had no idea what to do. And um, I was just really in awe. This is uh, completely out of my experience, something I had never um, had any kind of close comparison to. Get the hell away from that hole, the miner barked at me. I was standing three feet away from the edge of a steep uh, pile of rock. Uh, the broken, jagged rock was descending into an abyss that went deep underground to the next level. You got no goddamn business next to that hole, the old miner yelled at me. As a union president representing most of the miners at the homestake, it was Dallas' job to make this unreal world, this place of incredible danger, very crystal clear to me, so that I wouldn't um, also be in danger. Just a week before, a young miner had fallen into a draw hole 
just like this one. Unknowingly, his partner was pulling a chute on the level below, and the young miner got caught in the crushed rock and was killed, his head fracturing, and it took hours for the mine rescue crew to pull him out. They brought him down to the little miner's hospital in Deadwood, where he lay for eight hours before he died. The obvious course of action to med flight him either to Denver or Minneapolis was lost in the decision-making protocol of a second-class healthcare system where a miner's life were one of the costs of producing gold bullion. So this was an experience that, for me, I had never, um, as I said before, really never encountered anything like this before. Uh, as I was underground, everything I saw, uh, felt, uh, and heard made an incredible impression on me. I was frightened, but I was also so excited about every new thing I learned about. I soon began to figure out, though, that this was a place of great danger and where the possibilities for dismemberment and death were very great. I um, had been coming to this uh, kind of conclusion in my life that I wanted to make a difference and health and safety organizing was one of the ways I wanted to do it. But this was a whole new ballgame. This was a place that I had really no experience with. Uh, the union was strong. The union was doing what it could. But it was um, far beyond my experience. And um, a strange thing occurred. When um, I was given the opportunity to have my own mining stope a few months later, uh, I learned some interesting facts. The young miner who had died, he had left a wife and a baby, um, had actually been on the crew that I was assigned to. The stope that he was working in was near the place where um, they had assigned us to work. And the locker on the surface that was my locker, I was told had been his locker. But I think this was just a uh, sadistic miner who was trying to scare the hell out of me, of which I was already had the hell scared out of me, so it didn't really work. <laughs> Um, on the surface, life became very sweet. Our daughter was born at that little miner's hospital in Deadwood. And my partner um, had got used to life as a miner's wife, um, which had its own dangers and its own um, fear factor. Um, but she dealt with it with, with grace and stoicism. And my Organizing around health and safety issues took a completely different turn than I would have expected. Uranium mining was coming to the Black Hills, and we had to stop it. So I formed Miners for Safe Energy, a miners group opposed to mining. <laughs> and um, we worked hard to educate people about the nuclear fuel cycle, which has a devastating effect on miners because of radiation and the communities they live in. A broad coalition of miners, Indians, ranchers, and environmentalists were able to stop uranium mining in the Black Hills. But that's another story. After years of being underground, I, the, the dangers of the mine became commonplace. And my appreciation for miners and the difficulty of our work really sunk in. And it became clear to me that it was the company and nature 
and not the union that dictated the safety and the possibility of death for miners' lives. In 1982, the mine uh, went on strike. The union decided to uh, strike in the summertime. A week after the strike was over with, my son, I mean, started, I'm sorry, my son was born. Um, so I spent the summer walking the picket line, enjoying the beautiful, natural uh, areas of the Black Hills with my young family and not having to be underground for four months. At the end of the strike, we lost our house to foreclosure. I quit the mine and we left the Black Hills. I still had my body intact. We had two little beautiful kids in tow and I had a lifetime of stories to tell about my gold mining days. Thank you. Good work that makes a difference, Bill. Thanks, Pat, you helped. <laughs> I was down in the mines with you, I almost you forgot. Almost that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Barbara Rim Kunis is coming up next. She lives in Exeter, where she is the curator and co-executive director of the Exeter Historical Society. Although born in Connecticut and raised in Maine by her New York parents, she has come to believe that Exeter, New Hampshire is where she should be from. Each workday finds her com oh, communing, I almost want to say commuting, communing with the dead of this small but remarkable place. A month ago, I heard her tell a wildly entertaining, circuitous 20-minute tale about whales, marathons, and idyllic childhood off the coast of Maine that led to, well, let's see where it leads tonight in this shorter version of Barbara's story with a longer title than you'll read on your program. It is, listen to your house, parentheses, when it tells you about whale oil. Close parentheses. Now, aren't you curious? <laughs> All right. So I don't read a lot of fiction. I decided a few beers ago that I should get more fiction into my life. I spend most of my time reading history, which shouldn't be called nonfiction, right? It should be called fact. Fiction should be called non-fact. Okay, anyway. <laughs> so a few years ago, I decided I was going to get more fiction in my life. And so the novel that I chose to read was the one that my high school history teacher, uh, high school English teacher told us was the greatest American novel ever written, and it's Moby Dick. And then they don't make you read it in high school because it's a terrible book for high schoolers to read. <laughs> but I decided to do it. I decided to give myself a whole year to read the book. It's quite dense. It's written by Herman Melville, published in 1851. Sorry, it's history. Um, and I read the book, and uh, my mother had recommended it to me as well. She said, it's a really good book, except for all the whale stuff, <laughs> which was really puzzling to me because, you know, it seems like it's about a whale. Um, but Herman Melville, he captures you. He grabs you as you're reading it. His prose is poetry, and he takes you into this story of, of the whale and of the captain and of the people, and then he inserts an entire textbook of whaling in the middle of the story. But I got through it, and I read the story. So hold that thought. <laughs> when I was eight years old, my family moved from Connecticut to Maine. We weren't from 
Maine, we never would be. Uh, we were transplanted transplants, my parents from New York. And Maine was very different from Connecticut or New York. It smelled different. You know, Connecticut smelled like, like uh, earth and wet leaves. And we moved to the coast of Maine right on Casco Bay. We were in Falmouth, Maine, just outside of Portland. Portland actually used to be Falmouth until they got all fancy and changed their name, so we were left. <laughs> Falmouth, Maine, uh, right on the coast, smells like the mudflats, the salty air, dead fish, and there's a baked bean factory right there. So throw the baked beans in. That's what Falmouth smells like. Right near our house, there was a causeway that led out to an island called Mackworth Island. And you could walk out to the island. My parents took us out there, and it was beautiful. And then after that, we kids were allowed to go. And I have a big family. There's seven kids in our family. So we kind of ran in packs. And there's a nature trail all around the perimeter of the island. And you're supposed to walk and meditate and find it beautiful. We were 70s kids, so we would take our bikes and go tearing around the trail, nearly destroying it. And sometimes we'd dump our bikes in the woods, and then we'd go down on the shore. And the shore, I mean, you want me to say it was a beautiful, lovely beach, and everything was gorgeous. But there was a, I mean, not only was it smelly like dead fish, but there were all sorts of things that used to float in. There was driftwood, there's little pieces of rope, there were lobster buoys, there was all kinds of junk that used to float in. And we had to contend with seagulls, which we hadn't had to kill with anything. They are big, and they're noisy and obnoxious, and you're on their turf. My brother was almost killed by a seagull one time. We were walking along on the road, and this seagull dive-bombed us, and it threw a missile at us. It just missed my brother's head and went into the grass, and we went and found it, and it was a clam the size of your fist. Because the seagulls, which are just rats with feathers, had learned that if they throw a clam at a street, it'll crack open and they can eat it. And all I could think at the time was, I was 10 years old, and I thought, I go into school tomorrow, and I could say, yeah, my brother was killed by a seagull. <laughs> he was clammed to death. But my brother's very much alive, and I didn't get the chance to do that. But wouldn't that have been cool? Anyway, so we learned to live with the seagulls. So we spent that summer just out on the island all the time, just um, playing with seashells like other kids play with Legos. It was just fun, messy, smelly, dirty, fun, cold water. The next summer we went out, and uh, we were playing again out on the Mackworth Island. And that summer in Casco Bay, there was an oil spill. One of the big oil tankers that came in through South Portland hit Soldier's Ledge, which is up by Peaks Island, between Peaks Island and Pumpkin Knob, which is a real place, and ripped open the tanker. And they put the baffles out. And I remember we were sitting around at dinner talking about it. And we didn't think that the oil was going to get to our part of Casco Bay, where we were at Mackworth Island and Cousins Island. Didn't think it was going to get there. So we went out on the beach. So we were playing again, uh, or wandering around out on Mackworth Island looking at all the junk floating in. We saw something floating in. It looked kind of weird. It was like a glob. Actually, there were a few of them floating out there. And we got a little closer, and these globs were like tar balls. And they had sticks in them, and they had pieces of rope, and all kinds of debris stuck to them. And when they came all the way into shore, if you poked at it with a stick, it was this black, tarry stuff. Now, I don't know as kids if we realized what that was, if we knew it was the oil, but it didn't, didn't seem like oil that we knew. I mean, my only idea of oil was salad oil, so there you are. So we didn't know what it was. 
And I don't recall whether or not we mentioned to the adults when we got back home that we had seen these tar balls. I took a poll of my siblings recently to find out. None of them could remember if we told them either. But we had kind of been reassured that the oil wasn't going to get to us. Well, the next time we went out, a day or so later, there were more tar balls. And then there were ribbons of black, tarry oil. And as the tide came in, it would leave it, and there'd be marks along the shoreline. And then the small ribbons became thicker ribbons. And then it was an oily wash everywhere, and we didn't go out to the island anymore. They cleaned it up with hay, which was unexpected. First loose hay, and then these big baffles of hay. And the next year when we went out to, to see what it was like, um, it was pretty much cleaned up. But as my brother John, the guy that almost got clammed, pointed out to me recently, there was still always a stain on the rocks. And you could always, underneath the sand, you always felt that oil there. So it was a constant reminder of what we were capable of doing. We could destroy everything. Um, very much ingrained in my mind, except I forgot that whole story for a long time. I grew up and did not become a marine biologist because I spent idyllic moments at the shoreline. I became a historian. I work in facts. I like to know how things happen. I live in Exeter now, which is on a tidal river, which means I still have to contend with seagulls. They're still there. So about two years ago, on a beautiful fall morning, um, I should point out that I live in a really old house. My house was built in 1775. Not actually that old for Exeter. Town was settled in 1638, so it's not all that old. But when you live in an old house, you have to love your old house, otherwise you are going to hate your old house. Because there is always something falling apart on your house, and your house is much, much older than you, and it knows that. <laughs> so it doesn't care if all one winter all the gutters fall off. And then when you try to put new gutters on, the wood is rotten. And then when you try to fix the rotten wood, the shingles are falling off. You know how it is. You can, you, you've got to love it or you're going to hate it. <laughs> So this beautiful October morning, I head into the bathroom to take a shower, grateful that this house that had been built without plumbing now had it. And I thought, OK, I'll put on a podcast, listen to that while I take a shower, because the podcast was about whaling. And I thought, oh, that's nice. I have read Moby Dick. I'm all set. So I turn on the podcast. And if you're having an intrusive thought right now, put a robe on me. Just do that. You'll stop thinking about it. <laughs> And uh, the podcast of Backstory starts in about whaling. And um, they talk about whaling. And they talk about how in the earliest years of whaling, in the early 1800s, whale oil changed everything. It changed everything. Whale oil lamps turned the night into day. Whale oil allowed people to be productive at night when they had never been before. Whale oil lubricated the Industrial Revolution. Fortunes were made on whale oil. And I don't know if it's just historians, but every now and then you get one of those moments where you just become paralyzed with understanding, and I suddenly realized that I was standing in this house built in 1775, and it had been here before <laughs> whale oil and after whale oil. So this house knew that time. This house knew when dark became light. And this house knew when every product in the house was made out of baleen. And my house said, I know. <laughs> <laughs> what story are you going to tell? Became obsessed with the idea of whale oil and whaling and everything that had to do with that, even though my town was not a whaling town. I assigned my volunteers at the Historical Society to find out where could you buy whale oil in Exeter. 
so that I could walk past that storefront with one of my kids and say, that's where the people who lived in our house, whose names were such and such, ordinary people, bought their whale oil. And in my head, everything that was going through that was Herman Melville's story of these men who chased the whales to the farthest points of the earth because there were fewer and fewer whales out there. So now I knew. At least I knew where the whale oil was, but I still didn't understand why my house was sending me on this journey. Our anniversary came up that August, and I said to my husband two days before our anniversary, this is what happens after you've been married 34 years, two, two days before I said, hey, what do you want to do for our anniversary? He said, oh, we could go to a movie. I said, yeah, or we could go to New Bedford to the Whaling Museum. <laughs> and after 34 years, he said, yes, because that's what you do. And we went, and we were there when it opened. We stayed all day long. We only left to go to lunch at the Moby Dick pub. And when we came back in, Mike went to the bathroom, and I went to the front desk and said, I need a membership. And she said, a family membership? No, just me. <laughs> so she gave me the instructions about what membership had to offer me. And she said, oh, and of course, we also do the Moby Dick Marathon in January, if you're into that kind of thing. I said, do tell. They read the entirety of Moby Dick all the way through. It takes 25 hours straight. They start at noon on a Saturday and they finish at 1 o'clock on Sunday afternoon. She said there's only 210 slots. Sign up start on November 8th at midnight. I pushed send at 12.06 a.m. and a month later I was told that I was slot number 158 in the Moby Dick Marathon. 158 and it was six seconds into it. So, you know. So they tell you exactly where, uh, well, they tell you roughly where you're going to be reading. That you're going to be somewhere between these chapters depending upon how fast or slowly other people read. So they told me around chapter 100. So I overpracticed everything and I read a few chapters before that. I read a few chapters after that. I was already rereading Moby Dick out of sequence because you can do that and it's fun. So I was rough, you know, going through it. So, and I thought, I better, I better do more. What if, what if they read really fast and they're ahead or they're behind? So I get to chapter 105. Does the whale's magnitude diminish? Will he perish? That is a chapter title. Does the whale's magnitude diminish? Will he perish? This is where Herman Melville is trying to figure out in 1851 whether or not whales will go extinct. There is no concept of extinct species at this point in time. This is years before origin of species gets, gets um, even discussed. And yet he is already pondering this. This is the only part of Moby Dick I'm going to read to you. Promise. But still another inquiry remains. Whether owing to the almost omniscient lookouts the mastheads of the whale ships now penetrating even the Bering Straits and into the removest secret drawers and lockers of the world and a thousand harpoons and lances darted along all continental coasts. The moot point is whether Leviathan, that means whale, right? he couldn't just say that, can long endure so wide a chase and so remorseless a havoc, whether he will not be last, at last be exterminated from the waters and the last whale like the last man, smoke his last pipe, and then himself evaporate in the final puff. That's the answer to why you read Melville. And that's the chapter I thought, that's the one I'm going to read. 
That's the one I'm called to read. I'm going to read that chapter. So I get there, and I'm almost done, I promise. And I'm waiting around for my turn. I am reader number 158. Everybody is in the room, and all you hear is the quiet turning of pages. And sometimes people read their chapter in another language to make it more challenging. And somebody taps me on the shoulder and says, you're going to be reading soon. You need to go to the reader's area. Okay, okay. Gather all my things, my coat, my knitting, my book, my oranges, everything I had with me. I rush over to that spot, and I get myself settled. And as I'm sitting down, I hear another person reading my chapter. Badly. So I didn't get my chapter. I wound up reading a different chapter. I read a chapter that was called The Carpenter. There's a whole musical number about this if you go to the musical of Moby Dick. But I didn't get my chapter. When we were all done with the book at 1.10 in the afternoon, we read the final piece, and the only people left are Ishmael and Moby Dick, spoiler alert, the whale wins. And we slapped our books closed and cheered. And then I still wondered why I had gone on this journey. What was my hero's journey? Why was my house telling me I had to do this whale oil thing? It took quite a while. I got home, and I was thinking about whale oil. I was thinking about this huge industry that was there and existed and was everything, and then it was nothing, and it was gone, and something replaced it. And as I threw a plastic container lid into the trash, I remember saying out loud to my son, I think I'm letting Greta down. Am I letting Greta down? Because the story that my house wanted to remind me was a 30-year-old story about an oil spill. And sometimes the kids see the tar balls first. Sometimes the kids see the tar balls first. And Herman... Melville knew it a couple centuries ago. Terry Farish has lived in many places and currently lives in Kiri, Maine. She is a writer and yoga teacher who has done a lot of work with immigrant populations. (coughs) Terry writes picture books, novels for children and teens, and is the author of the award-winning novel, The Good Braider. She also mentors young writers to write their own stories. Terry says she does much of the hard part of (coughs) writing while thinking and walking Rogers Park on Spruce Creek, the beaches, town forests, and any public walking path that allows her dog Clara and her to come along. She will tell us the story of a letter she received when she was young and working in Vietnam during the American War there. It's titled, Is Tui's Letter? When I was young, I had a job in Vietnam during the war. The Army and the American Red Cross thought it would be a good idea to bring young American women over to the war for the morale of the troops and for us to take recreation programs out to fire support bases and landing zones to tell the men that their country had not forsaken them. And the story I'm going to tell is about a letter I got 
during my last day in country. And the story, uh, excuse me, the letter was not by, um, it did not come to me from a GI. It came to me from a Vietnamese kid whose mom was what the GIs called a mamasan, and these were the local women that came in to work on the base. And we had um, a local mother who came in, and um, she cleaned our hooch, the place where we lived, and she did our laundry. Our laundry consisted of regulation blue dresses that all of the Red Cross workers wore. And we had um, red crosses on the collars, and we had a regulation navy blue scarf we could wear over our hair to be in the fierce wind of the choppers. But I have to tell you that some of the women wore very unregulation black armbands to be in solidarity with the anti-war protesters on this side of the world. The letter that came to me was written on, on graph paper, all the little squares of graph paper. And the corners of the paper were folded down so that in order to read the letter, I had to open it out like it was a bird. And the letter, it, it begins like this. Um, it begins, night, 13 April, 1970. And it's from a, a boy, his name is Tui, the son of, our, of, of the woman who was my friend who worked in our hooch. Um, that's one, one truth. Another truth is that I need to tell you why I was there, why I would go to Vietnam. And it wasn't because I was trying to get this youthful revenge against my mother. Um, who would spend the war, her hands gripped, uh, she told me, on the arm of her sewing chair, li listening to Walter, Walter Cronkite, because this was the first war to be televised on American television, and watching for a flash of, she hoped not her wounded daughter to come across the screen. No, I didn't go um, to do that to my mother. But I, I think as I come to make, try to make sense of my life, that I was going to school in Texas. And I was going to school next to Mineral Wells, which was a small town where the primary helicopter training school for Fort Walters was. And we knew a lot of the soldiers and the pilot trainees who were going to Vietnam. And one of them was my friend, and he used to come to my school and play on the dorm piano. He used to play Anyone Who Had a Heart and other Dionne Warwick songs. And shortly after, he was deployed from Mineral Wells to Vietnam. Now, Vietnam, uh, Texas, in my, in my memory of it, it seems like everybody in Texas was going to Vietnam. There were a lot of bases there. And if people weren't going to Vietnam, then they were grieving over someone who had gone to Vietnam and were counting the days because everybody who went to Vietnam went for 365 days. So I went. It was 1969. It was a bad year for the war, and all the years were bad. But by the time I got there in 69, the war had been militarily lost. 
but the combat would continue for many years. And on my last day there, the letter came to me, and I, I, um, I opened it. It begins night, 13 April, 1970. And Tui, um, after he proclaimed that I was his, his old sister, he would be my young brother, and he said, we will be friends by right, W-R-I-T-E. And he tells me he is so grateful because his mother could work for us merry girls. He called us the merry girls. And he said, my father has died, and I, hadn't, I haven't gone to school. But he just started going to school, and he was learning English, and his letter was in English. And then he said to me in the letter, um, I want to give you my address. And much of the letter was all the details of his address so I could reach him. He said, please give me your address. He said, when you go home, please write to me. He said, we will be friends forever. Promise me. Well, in the chaos of the war, and the chaos of knowing viscerally, but not being able to make sense of what I had seen that year, and in the chaos of not understanding maybe viscerally, but I could not make sense of the fact that the pilot who played anyone who had a heart on my dorm piano didn't come home, didn't survive. And in the chaos of coming home, in a political climate where I could not talk about where I had been, and in all of that turmoil that I was feeling, I forgot Tui's letter. And I didn't answer him. Now, that was 1970. In 1975, um, the Republic of Vietnam fell to the communist government, officially. Tui would have been 19, which was the average age of all of the Americans who worked and fought in his country. A lot of people who worked for the Americans, if they worked at a high level, the Americans assisted them to leave Vietnam and come to the United States. And the first refugees came that way from that country. Dewey's mother did not work at a high enough level for the Americans for her to be put on a, a flight after Saigon fell. But I came home. And I came home with this letter, like a bird, that I didn't answer. And I began the journey of my life to try to understand what I had seen in that war. And the way that I understand things is to write about them. And after, it was after I read so much history, biography, strategy, poetry, fiction about the war to try to find 
um, meaning to that war and others. I began to write novels myself for American kids to help them begin to understand what war is like and begin to understand that children and their families who come here as refugees to find a safe place. But I had Tui's letter. In fact, I still have it. It's the only thing I kept from the war. And I, I have been thinking about him and how he shaped my life in, in a way. And I've thought so much about what, what his future was. And in my imagination, I believe that he survived. I believe that he still lives where I knew him in Quinyan on the South China Sea. I believe that now he could be a grandfather. And I had this idea, what if the value of a letter, the power of a letter, is not so much in the person that creates it, no matter if he's written it in a language that's brand new to him, and that's a st stunning feat, or if it's beautiful and shaped like a bird, that maybe the power is not in that creation. Maybe the power is in the, the person who receives his letter. Maybe a letter binds a reader to the writer. So now I still have this letter, and I can open it and turn it over and feel it, and I can read it and try to make sense of my past. But then, and then I thought, that's probably bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> My friend said to me, she said, Terry, you have his address. Why don't you write to him? <laughs> maybe, maybe he's still by the South China Sea. He's not a piece of paper. He's a boy. He was a boy, and now he's a man. So what if I write to him? And what if I say, dear Tui, you might not remember me. Your mom scrubbed my uniform when you were a child and the donut dollies were over in your country. And I would say, Tui, please tell me who you are. Please write to me. <laughs> Wow, another great night of storytelling. Uh, thanks again to all of tonight's storytellers and to our uh, in-studio audience who really helped us, you know, back and forth. Thank you so all here together. Coming up next, we will hear an, uh, an interview of one of tonight's tellers. But first, let me tell you a few things. Our next True Tales Live will be on Tuesday, March 31st. The theme is, it worked or didn't. <laughs> we still have space for more storytellers for all of our 2020 shows. Email us at truetaleslivenh1 uh, at gmail.com if you are interested in signing up. 
And if you want to tell a story or aren't sure but might want to tell a story, we invite you to one of our workshops. We hold them um, most months here at PPM-TV, 280 Marcy Street in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Um, first Tuesday of most months from 7.30 to 9. They're free and open to everyone. And the next one is March 3rd. So whether you've told stories with us and just want help with your piece or want to check it out, we welcome you. Watch us on Comcast Channel 98 on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. and Saturdays at 1 p.m. And anytime as video on demand. You can go to our website, which is truetaleslivenh.org, to easily access all options. You can push like listen or watch or and really very easy. Let's thank some of those who make this show possible. John Levering, Pat Spaulding, Steve Koval, David Frainer, Stephanie Nugent, Sarah Bedingfield, Sam Adams, Chad Cordner, and Kevin Russell. I'm Amy Antonucci. And until our next True Tales Live show, on behalf of all of us here, thank you for listening. And stay tuned for David Frainer interviewing Terry Farish. <laughs>